is to do your research and take the time to understand the different segments within your market mm. so that you don't have pointless conversations. You're not talking to the wrong people. And sometimes you have to talk to the wrong people to know that you're building the right thing, but you wanna keep those wrong conversations to as few as possible. Hey everyone, this is Devin Miller here with another episode of The Inventive Journey. I'm your host, Devin Miller, the serial entrepreneur that has built several businesses and startups and small businesses to seven and eight figure companies, as well as the founder um, and CEO of Miller IP Law, where we help startups and small businesses put their patents and trademarks. And today we have another great guest on the episode. It's uh, Colby Tunick, I think is how I pronounce it. And uh, Colby is... Uh, Started out in uh, about 2015, graduated from San Diego State in political degree and looking into trade. And then he uh, really, or after that, found a passion for AI and machine learning and was kind of a self-taught coder. And uh, then he, uh, and I think, I don't know if I, you transferred to San Diego State in 2015. I almost got that wrong. Graduated in 2017 and then started working on some defense contracts. He went from there, decided he was going to get into more of how you apply machine learning to ins insurance and uh, started uh, to do uh, as the economy hit with or, or started out to look into that more. And then the economy hit with COVID, had to make some pivots and adjustments. And now he's built it to where they're in the marketplace, have some pilot, uh, pilot clients and are being uh, growing from there. So I'm sure I slaughtered it to some degree, but I did my best. But welcome to the podcast, Colby. Devin, great to be here. It sounds uh, more of a journey when I hear you say it than when it's in my own head. All right. Well, that's what I'm here for. So with that, I gave a very brief introduction, but maybe going back to kind of when you did, we're at San Diego State, we're studying politics and kind of pick it up from there. Absolutely. So at San Diego State University, I had the opportunity to work uh, with the Center for Information Convergence and Strategy, focusing on international trade. Uh, my degree was international security and conflict resolution, and I had the ability to travel all over the world and talk and deal with you know different individuals, tackle different uh, trade problems that really just came back to the better implementation of technology. Uh, during that time, uh, I began to look into the use of machine learning, or as you know the buzzword today is artificial intelligence. Mm. I think anybody who's firmly in the uh, machine learning space will say that artificial intelligence is a long way off. I myself would love a sentient being to do my cooking and cleaning for me and you know drive me from point A to point B, but don't think we're there yet. Uh, and I began looking into uh, this use of artificial intelligence, machine learning, to really help combat hate speech online. And it's a really intractable problem. There's a lot of different mediums uh, that are used for this sort of hate speech. And the interesting thing is it's not, none of it's uniform. A lot of it uses coded language, it's not obvious. And those are real places that machine learning shines and have been validated. Uh, finding single points of data among millions of points of data, noticing trends over time, and then using this machine learning to help target education dollars to combat hate speech. A lot of, a lot of what hate speech is is just lack of education. Mm. There's lots of great nonprofits out there that spend millions of dollars a year putting money into schools to try to 
do diversity in education training, which is even more relevant in 2020 than I think it was necessarily in 2015, or at least more prevalent in 2020 than it was in 2015 when I was starting to, to work on this. Mm. Uh, anyway, graduated, um, worked as an international defense consultant and projects all over the world. Hold on, just diving really quick into that. So you talked about, hey, you kind of got interested in using AI. And just a 30 seconds aside for my information, is there a difference between AI versus machine learning? Is machine learning kind of more, we, we have a whole bunch of workflows and you know, decision-making trees and just make sure. those really good? Or is there a difference between machine learning and AI? Yeah, so when we think about AI, oftentimes we think about what we see in the movies. Uh, again, we think about computers that are sentient, uh, computers that have the ability to make novel decisions without a precedent, right? They're able to just see a situation, understand the situation, and then act on that situation. And of course, that's not how uh, machine learning works today. Machine learning is very much in the statistical field. You're looking at trends over time, uh, anomaly detection. Uh, and because of that, even though machine learning falls under artificial intelligence uh, as kind of an umbrella master category, they are two different things. Uh, and in terms of where the field is going or, or where we're seeing real innovation, most of the innovation we're seeing is on the machine learning side, uh, just because sentient beings are probably on the horizon, but just a long ways off. Uh, interestingly, though, uh, how you train a machine is the same way you train a three-year-old or your dog. Mm. Uh, you show it lots of examples, repeated patterns, show it good and bad, and over time it has the ability to start finding those uh, patterns statistically. Mm. Um, so just think about that next time you hear about AI. It's very much like teaching a, a kid uh, how to catch a ball. Or and I'll give I'll give one more yeah. side, or I have two questions. I'll give one side. So. If you ever want to learn about machine learning, and you probably know, you already know a whole lot more than I do, but one was interesting. So I love podcasts. I do my own podcast, but I also <laughs> like listening to them. If you ever go to uh, American Innovations is another podcast. It's put down by Wondery, and they have two of my top favorite podcasts. One is called Business Wars, and the other one's called American Innovations. But they actually just went through a whole long series on the early, all the way up, starting from the beginning of AI to where it's at today, and mm -hmm. talking about how it started out with doing it on a lot with trying to figure out how to play chess and how to beat grandmasters and that was a good measure for is it smart or is it just doing you know how to do it so if just as a complete aside but since you're interested you may want to check out that uh, podcast series um now jumping back to it so you did it for hate speech and before we jump on to graduation and working for defense contractors did that ever go anywhere did you ever do anything did you just learn a whole bunch or whatever happened with your interest with combating combating hate speech and that while you were in uh, school yeah, so that interest is still there, but unfortunately it didn't get a lot of progress. And that's because um, oftentimes the biggest struggle, obstacle to any sort of public good initiative is trying to make it financially self-sustainable. And I know as a serial entrepreneur, you know that all too well. Sure. Uh, nonprofits uh, do not operate in what we would consider as entrepreneurs a financially sustainable way um, because they don't produce anything that people will pay for. They request in donation dollars and then allocate them out to causes that their patrons care about. Mm. Um, and that was the real reason that uh, it didn't get as much traction at the time as it liked. And I was also still learning a lot about the field. Um, machine learning in 2015 uh, through 2017 is far different than machine learning in 2020. 
uh, we've really seen a renaissance in the application and usefulness of the technology because of how open source development has progressed over the last five years. Mm. Okay, so and that makes that makes good sense. So now you do that. So you decide, okay, I'd love to find this interesting. Can't quite figure out how to make a career out of it or how to make a profit on it. So I've got to find something that will pay the bills once I graduate. And you moved into a bit of defense contracts. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I initially started as a grant writer, working on different grants for companies that were looking to get government money. Uh, most of them were in the defense field. Uh, it was really exciting because it was an application of my background that a lot of people need and not a lot of people want to do. Mm. Uh, grant writing is uh, very difficult, but it's also very educational. Mm. Um, I was writing grants for both the US Department of Defense as well as the UK Ministry of Defense. Okay. Uh, and then supporting my project manager on a whole bunch of other projects around the world. Uh, and you learn a lot about how companies operate and also how governments work with those companies um, and really where there's synergy between the two and where there's opportunity. Okay. So you did that. You worked for grant for working with grants and other, you know, or parallel things for a period of time. And you did that. And then it sounds like, you know, remind me. So you did that for a period of time. And then you said, Hey, I want to do something different. I, I want you moved into the insurance kind of industry and looking at earthquake authority. So remind me how you did that or how did you move or made that transition from defense contractors to earthquakes and insurance? Yeah. So I, I think it's, great to say or just just acknowledge the fact that i was very lucky getting that job right out of college mm. um, I, and I, I recognize that um, that set me on a pathway that a lot of recent grads don't have uh, i think when most people graduate uh, there's that initial confusion period unless you know you want to go and get your medical degree or you want to go and get your juris doctorate um, mm. or you want to pursue it you know a harvard degree in microbiology for instance uh, most people don't have that sort of direction out of their undergrad. Uh, after working at uh, as that with a defense consultant as a defense consultant, um, I wanted something that could help people and also do government work, work in the government. Mm. Um, and I applied to and uh, got a position at the California Earthquake Authority. Hmm. which is the second largest single line natural catastrophe insurance company in the world. Uh, California is unique because we are so earthquake prone. Uh, there are, of course, government owned insurance companies for a lot of things. I, I think floods, uh, the uh, national flood insurance program is probably the one that comes to mind for most people, but other sovereign nations also have programs like this. So New Zealand and Japan both have at their you know national level earthquake insurance programs um so this was i never thought i'd end up working in an for an insurance company in insurance uh, that was never something on the radar and i think that's most people in insurance <laughs> if you talk to them they were doing something else and you know you don't they, just grow up as a little kid say i'm going to work in insurance i'm going to be an insurance agent i you know i haven't met anybody i've also only met one person in my life that wanted to grow up and be a dentist so I think there are just some career fields that lend themselves to more hmm. adult versioning, I guess you could say. Sure. Uh, so, 
so you jumped in big or second biggest insurance agent. So I'm sure California, both they have wildfires, they have earthquakes and they have a whole bunch. It's a good place to live on some sense and you better have good insurance on the other sense. So you work for that for a period of time. And then how did you then transition over to kind of what you're doing now? I think you said you're now going, you kind of saw the opportunity to apply machine learning to insurance. Yeah. So uh, insurance is one of the few industries that have too much data. Most other industries struggle from a lack of data. And it's interesting that you talked about the American Innovations podcast, because uh, when we think about the history of artificial intelligence or machine learning, mm -hmm. the same algorithms have been in use since the 60s. The big limiter in the space has been the amount of data to train these models. So a great example of this is GPT-3. This is Google's new natural language processing algorithm. And it used something like billions of uh, data points and took months to train. Mm. Um, that's not data that was available in the 60s. So the great limiter for machine learning has always been the amount of data to train these models. Uh, mm. And insurance is one of the few fields that has too much data and also doesn't necessarily know what to do with it. Um, Accenture estimated, uh, I believe in 2016, that insurance companies only use 15, 10 to 15% of the data they have. And this is all the data they have. Um, mm. Where I work is, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an insurance carrier. It falls directly under this, you know, 10 to 15% of data. And it was difficult for us to try to answer internal business questions because we have so much data. How do you turn that into actionable items? Mm. Um, and machine learning is great because it, you can look at data on the macro level and come up with, you know, micro tactics really is where machine learning shines. And you can automate it in such a way where you don't need to have a data science team looking at the same data day in and day out to try to come up with just that new version of the data. You can hook into the data source, automate the whole process, and come up with really actionable business intelligence at the end. Okay. So, so now you, you kind of have that idea, that realization, hey, we've got a lot of data insurance companies have more data than they know what to do with. They have, they're not utilizing it or leveraging it as well as they otherwise could. So, you know, kind of the same questions before, how did you, what did you do to start forming a business or making a strategy or to, to fix that problem? What was the next step for you? Yeah. So to be fair, I didn't actually start off using machine learning for insurance. I was, I was still in the vein of machine learning for social media. And what I did is uh, I went out and I talked to 10 people and that's the minimum number of people that any, uh, person who's interested in starting a business of any kind, whether it's a high growth tech startup or it's you know, a local service company, should speak with the start to understand the market. Mm. Uh, so I did that, spoke to 10 people in the marketing space and I got lukewarm feedback. At the same time, uh, my business partner, it was my business partner then, but uh, now he's our chief operations officer, Elijah Chang. Uh, he and I were going to the UC Davis uh, Big Bang Innovation Challenge and he, was also talking to people about my idea without me knowing, which was really interesting and just giving me feedback on it from what he was hearing uh, mm. from people in the, the marketing field. And uh, the feedback for that was not very good uh, to be fair. And I think mm. that's one of the hard things in having this idea you believe is amazing. And then people that you would ultimately sell it to say, ah, don't need it, don't want it, too expensive, not interested. Um, so I called up an advisor who I knew from a previous startup I'd worked at. And 
I said, you know, we're running into this obstacle. What do you think? And he said, I really think you should evaluate the industry you're in, which is insurance. Do some market discovery there, start understanding the numbers, and there, there may be a better application of your technology there. And he was absolutely right. And it was interesting because that was the piece of the puzzle that was sitting right in front of my eyes, but I just was too close to the forest to see the trees, mm. uh, so to speak. Uh, so then uh, a couple weeks after that, uh, we spoke to 10 more people in insurance, and these were very preliminary calls. Um, mm. These were calls where you asked three questions. You know, what are the problems you're facing? Uh, a better way to solve those problems, right? Those are the three standard business development questions anyone should always ask. Um, mm. And the feedback we got was really positive. And they said, yeah, there's lots of need uh, in insurance for us to use our data. Uh, we're not necessarily that we're struggling, but we're kind of churning our wheels. Um, and we were like, okay, there's something here. So then what we did was we spoke to another 40 people, brought us to 50. And we began to uh, invalidate some of our early assumptions. Early on, we thought we'd be on the underwriting side of the house, uh, and which is just the process of a company taking in a, a, a potential policyholder and saying, is it worth us taking on this risk? Mm. Um, is this person going to fit into our risk tolerance and to our risk portfolio? Uh, and invalidated that, had a couple more conversations, uh, never stopped talking to people and um, started then building a product after these initial conversations to just show uh, two interested parties and I, I think Reid Hoffman, the CEO of LinkedIn, founder of LinkedIn, put it really well. And he said, you should always be embarrassed in your first product. I know I'm, I'm paraphrasing it, but it's entirely true. You always, when you put together something small uh, for the first time, it, it's functional, it works, but it's not, it's not your vision, of course. Most of the time when you show it to someone, you kind of like grin, you bear it, kind of maybe suck on your teeth a little bit and say, what do you think and brace for impact. Um, so that's really how we got started, and so now, just, so you, so you get started, and then you know, I think it was you said it was what it was January, February that you got started, or when was that when you really made the launch or got started? We got really started in Jan, midway through January. So you make you get started. You said okay, we we figured out finally our fit. We figured out you know who will necessarily pay, where it's going to fit in, where the data is going to be, and you kind of get all that information together. And then you mentioned kind of COVID hit, and that had a bit of a downturn, or you know that, or you had to make some pivots or adjust. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, COVID was the unexpected uh, wrench in the plan early on. So COVID really. Um, took off in March of 2020. Of course, we, we were starting to hear rumors of it in February, but 2020 is when things really started uh, to change rapidly for yeah. everybody. And not just for us as early co-founders, not just us in the insurance market, everybody in the United States and around the world went through a really dramatic change overnight. Um, and we were talking with someone who we wanted to be an, uh, an advisor to the company, ultimately to not become an advisor to the company. Um, and he sent us an email in, in March telling us, you know, this is literally the stupidest time in American history. And American history was in caps in this email to go and start a company. That's got to make you encouraged. 
<laughs> yeah. about your business. Hey, this is the absolute worst, dumbest or time you could ever start a business. Why would you even think about it? So what did you do with that? Um, I think I probably made myself another cup of coffee and kept working. <laughs> uh, so we always starting a company, people always talk about there's going to be obstacles and there's going to be trials and tribulations. And I, I guess COVID was the, like the, the Trump card, the ACE card, the ACE in the hole, whatever you want to call it, right? The, the maximum mm. uh, amount of disruption possible. Uh, but we just kept working. We were still early on enough where we didn't have a product in the market. We were still doing early customer discovery. Mm. So it didn't interrupt necessarily our viability. What it did do though is push us to really focus in on the problems our customers have. Uh, mm. And that comes into using their data to make more sales. Uh, and we were kind of skirting around this issue and we were speaking to a company that's right in our sweet spot. And they said, we love what you're doing, but at this time we cannot buy anything that's not gonna help us make more sales. And after that, we really took a hard look and said, okay, how can we fit into this new normal where everyone in this entire industry is now sales focused, staying alive focused, if you will. Mm. So COVID definitely helped. Uh, but at the same time, uh, my co-founder went on employment, which was quite stressful for him. I went through a divorce, which was also uh, definitely a bit of a game change. Uh, so COVID, unemployment, divorce, you know, these are all things that you never think will happen. Mm. And you also never think will happen when you're in the middle of, you know, 16 hour days trying to build a company from nothing. A mm. uh, little bit makes it a little bit harder to, to get your, get yourself excited about the 16 hour days when you're going through a divorce, you're going through COVID, you're having a hard time getting or making payroll or getting any money coming in. So I'm sure that's stressful. Now let's fast forward. So you made you, COVID started still going today, although things are at least opening up a bit more, getting a bit more of a normalcy. So how, how did you go from that point in life to now today where you've got a couple of pilot clients and you're you know, having some revenue source and building the company? Yeah, I think it was just a matter of continuing to talk to individuals. That was really the, uh, the, the factor that got us over that you know, initial three-month hump from, I guess you can say, April through June. Mm. Uh, it was just continuing to talk to people, continuing to push forward on product development, continuing to get closer and closer to the pain our customers have that we're ultimately trying to solve. Uh, and just talking, just continuing to talk to people. Um, the paid pilots that we have today were not to say totally unexpected, but uh, these were situations where we sent someone an email and they responded and said, let's jump on a phone call today. Mm. Uh, let's just use your product today. Um, and we're very excited to continue on those paid pilots uh, and continue the development of the product. Um, one of the interesting things is for some of the paid pilots uh, we have in the works, we have people who just asked to buy the product. Hmm. Uh, and they're like, we just want it, give it to us today, implement it for hundreds of people. Uh, and it was actually really frustrating that I had to say no to that. And we had to go the paid pilot route because we just don't have the team. Uh, we're a team of four. Myself, my CTO, uh, Alexander Pearson Goulart, uh, Elijah, our COO, and then uh, Vatsal uh, Garwal, who is our machine learning engineer. Mm. Um, and they've all been fantastic partners in this. Um, you know, they've all pushed day in and day out. Uh, and 
realizing that among the four of us right now, we don't have the resources to just bring on these hundreds of uh, users uh, has been a learning experience. Um, and that's also something that you don't think about when you start a company. You'll think once people want to, once we get it to the point where people want to pay for it, of course we'll just be able to have them pay for it. Uh, yeah. It's one of those, you're like, man, we'd love you to pay for it, but we can't quite do it yet. So, so all right. So, so and congratulations. That's exciting for be able to take it all the way from idea, conception, make it through COVID, get told it's the worst time to start a business, actually having both customers that are pilot customers, as well as ones that want to buy it. So, well, there, there are always more things to talk about than time to talk about. But what I would like to do is now kind of as, as we jump or get towards the end of the podcast, I always have my two questions. So we'll jump to those now. So the first question I always ask is, is so within your journey, within everything you did, what was the worst business decision you made and what did you learn from it? Yeah. Um, so the worst business decision that we've made uh, has not was not necessarily the worst business decision for this startup, but as I mentioned, uh, myself and both my co-founders have been part of other startups. Mm. Uh, and a mistake that we learned there that we didn't repeat, the worst business mistake that I've ever seen made is not listening to what your customers want, thinking that you know more than your customer, and then designing a product that doesn't actually solve their pain point, and then you know, realizing that that's not why you're making, not making sales. No, I, I think that is one that you have to learn. Hey, if I, I can have the world's best product, if nobody's willing to pay for it or they're not paying what we need for it, it doesn't matter how good of a product or idea it is, it's still not going to work. So I think that's one to certainly learn, a, a good lesson to learn from. So, okay. Second one uh, question I always ask is, so now if you're talking to someone that's just getting to start up, just getting into a small business, what would be the one piece of advice you'd give them? Yeah. Um, I guess this is something that you would normally learn by going through uh, a free startup program or an entrepreneurial course. And of course, those are all, you know, highly recommended. Most communities have a startup or an entrepreneurial focused organization that just free education for anybody in the community who's thinking about starting a business. Uh, but the one piece of advice that I would give to someone who's looking to start a business is to do your research and take the time to understand the different segments within your market mm. so that you don't have pointless conversations. You're not talking to the wrong people. And sometimes you have to talk to the wrong people to know that you're building the right thing, but you want to keep those wrong conversations to as few as possible. Mm, no, I, 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 that's great advice and, and certainly something to take to heart. So now people want to use your product. They want to be a pilot or pilot customer. They want to work for you. They want to donate to you. They want to any, any, or just know more about how you're applying machine learning to insurance industry or any or all of the above. What's the best way to connect up with you and find out more? Absolutely. So uh, you can go to our website, which is refocusai.com uh, and contact us through that. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn. It's just uh, Colby Tunick on LinkedIn um, hmm. or shoot me an email at Colby at refocusai.com. All right. Well, I definitely encourage everybody to reach out, connect up, find out more. So, well, thank you again for coming on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Now, everybody else, um, if you have your own in uh, inventive journey to tell, feel free to apply to be a guest on the podcast by going to inventivejourneyguest.com. If you are a listener, make sure to click subscribe. So you get a notification of all the new uh, episodes as they come out. And lastly, if you ever need any help with patents and trademarks, if you're a startup and small business, feel free to check out us at uh, Miller IP Law. We're always happy to help. 
Thank you again, Colby. It's been fun to have you on and wish you the next leg of your journey even better than the last. Thanks, Devin. It's been a pleasure. Stay safe and take care. Thank you.